You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast about some amazing Black and Latino women in STEM. This new season, in honor of Black History Month, we're celebrating the stories of Black women in STEM. Stay tuned each week for interviews and roundtable conversations because we'll be talking to women in tech, entrepreneurship, finance, and much, much more. This is Matt Stevenson. Welcome back to another episode of Technically 200. Today, we are speaking with a good friend of mine. I, I, by now, I think the listeners probably think, do you only work within your network to find guests? But I just, I just roll pretty deep and I have some incredible people in my network and, and I feel blessed for that. And uh, today's guest is no different. Her name is Lisa Alexander. She is vice president at Farragut Square Group. Uh, she is in their New York office and she heads the private equity advisory product as well as business development for the firm. Uh, as such, she manages both the private equity and lender product and relationships. Lisa has been with Farragut since 2014. So go, wow, going on seven, eight years. It'll be seven years this year. Good Lord. And that, that's a while. You're telling me. Yeah, this is the longest I've been at a job. So, I mean, I've been working, I guess now for about almost 18 years or so, but seven years, it's been the longest run I've had. So <laughs> that is, that is a while. I, I think also for our generation, that's generally yep. past that five-year mark. Um, but immediately prior to joining Farragut, Lisa worked as a vice president at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch focused on corporate strategy and internal consulting. She holds an MBA from the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, go Quakers, and a BA in political science from Yale University, go yeah. Bulldogs. So welcome, Lisa. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm very happy to be here. I uh, always love chatting with you, Matt. So, um, you know, just looking forward to, to, uh, to chatting. So there, we've got a lot to chat about. I, I would love to start off by you telling us when was your first memory of your love or interest in STEM? Uh, sure. And so um, that's a great question. So my first, my first memory. Um, well, I have always had an interest in, um, in both math and science. <laughs> um, and so my first memory, I say that it probably goes way, way back. So my mother uh, was an elementary school teacher. Uh, and so that can really start you off. And, and, you know, when I was very young, she was the specialty science teacher at her school you know, in addition to her, like just being into science, she was also into teaching her kids. And so I was always from when I was like three or four doing math problems or logic games. They were one of my favorite things and they still are. Um, you know, she also, you know, during holiday breaks would bring home, you know, animals from her classroom. So she would bring home the turtle or the lizard. We had chickens at one point. We had rabbits or, you know, any kind of animal that, you know, just needed a home for the week or so that school was closed. Um, and so I, I think that early exposure always in interests me in, in math and science. Um, you know, I, my background uh, professionally is really in, in business. 
Um, and so, you know, my first exposure, really my serious exposure on the business side, I would say, um, aside from my interest in math and science was really in high school when I attended a, um, a summer program, you know, for minorities, uh, for minority students that were go between their junior and senior year in high school. And you spent a week, uh, sorry, you spent a month away at a business school taking business courses um, and just doing team building activities with about 30 other students. Um, and the goal for that program was to uh, create a business and a business plan and then present it to venture capitalists and investors. And, um, you know, I would say that program kind of really solidified my interest in kind of the finance and, and the business side. It's so it's that early exposure is really something because it's I feel like you ask any child or student what they want to be when they grow up and typically it's limited to whatever they've already been exposed to. Yeah. Right? And and that exposure <laughs> means so much. And so can you talk to me a little bit more about uh, you? You participated in lead, but the role that mentorship has played in your life overall. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think, you know, mentorship is, is so important. And, um, you know, when you're younger, you have nat you, you can have natural mentors, which are, you know, your your teachers, or if you're in the Girl Scout, your Girl Scout leader, or your parents, or aunts and uncles, or friends' parents. And then as you get older, uh, you know, in the workplace or, you know, in college, you'll find mentors and professors or, um, you know, your boss or other sponsors. And, you know, mentorship has taken, so I say that to say it's taken different forms, you know, throughout my life. Um, you know, as a young girl, I saw, you know, mentors and role models, you know, really in my mom and my best friend's mom. My mother was a teacher, as I said, my best friend's mom was in finance and she worked at Merrill Lynch and she started as a secretary um, and ended up as a managing director running their whole East Coast operations. And so, um, you know, back in those days, people stood at, stayed in their jobs for like 30, 40 years, and she was one of those folks. Um, and so, you know, seeing that was influential for me. Um, as I got older, um, you know, I had, you know, I was in lead. I was also in another program called Inroads, which placed uh, minority students in finance internships. I worked at JP Morgan. There was another, um, you know, mentor there. Her name was Bridget McCurtis, in case she ever hears this. Um, and she was instrumental in terms of giving me feedback around, um, you know, how to conduct myself and how I was being, um, and how I was coming across like within my internships. And so like one example I have um, of that in like my, one of my very early internships, I was, I think, um, I'm trying to think of how old I was. I may have been either 18 or 19. It was either right after my senior year of high school or right after my first year of college. And I was interning at JP Morgan, really trying my best, working hard. Um, and she pulled me aside one day and she was telling me, you know, hey, are you really interested in being here, you know, or in this program? And I was like, yeah, I, I am interested. Why do you ask? And she was telling me that, you know, that she was getting feedback that, you know, I didn't seem interested or um, I kind of wasn't paying attention. And what I gained from that or what I find out, found out was that, you know, maybe my, my facial expressions or my verbal cues or my nonverbal cues that I was giving out was really being interpreted, interpreted 
um, completely opposite in terms of, of the way that I intended it to be. Um, and so that is one of those, you know, items from very early in my career that have really shaped a lot of what I do and, you know, just increased my self-awareness in terms of, um, it just in terms of, of how other people are receiving me. Um, which is is really crucial, particularly as an African American woman. You know, you have to you have to be aware of it. You you know, you would hope that you can just go about and do whatever and be yourself, but you have to be self aware. Um, and so, you know, that's one example. But I've really had mentors throughout my younger life and professional career um, that helped just help to guide me, uh, give me candid feedback, um, help me in my decision making of what I'm doing next. And so. You know, you always seek out mentors, I would say. Um, they have been instrumental in every single step of my career, and I still have them today, and I still use them today. <laughs> How do you get that um, that candid feedback and, and find people who will give that to you? Because I feel like there is this tension of, on one hand, there are professionals who are typically white who don't want to say the wrong thing. Yeah. They don't want what they, they don't want the intent to be misconstrued. And then on the black professional side, you don't know who to trust. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You don't know the vein in which that candid feedback and candid in quotes is being delivered. So talk to me about that tension and, and what are some solutions that you think both sides might have? So, you know, that's, that's an interesting point. Um, you know, thinking through the mentors that I've had in the past, all of them have come across um, nat- pretty naturally. And I would say, you know, by that, I mean, um, I didn't, they weren't forced relationship, I, relationships and they actually, none of them were formal mentor relationships. So it wasn't like, hey, Will you be my mentor? It was more so, you know, folks that I worked with that I got to know, um, and I got to to understand that their intent, their intent, and that they, you know, were an honest person, that they had integrity, and that, you know, when they provided me feedback, it was, you know, feedback I could trust. And so I say for personal mentors, um, one thing to do is to really look around to folks that you, you know, older folks that you talk to often, I'm not even older folks, or, or just people that you talk to off, often who you, you know, think are role models, and kind of evaluate them and see who could serve as that position in your life. Um, I think it's harder to initiate kind of a, a, a mentorship relationship coldly, like just reaching out to someone saying, hey, I'm looking for a mentor. I think kind of looking to those people that you've had exposure to, um, whether a little bit or a lot, and starting to build those relationships with those people that you feel comfortable with. When it's more forced, I, I feel it doesn't, it just doesn't work as well. And so, you know, for example, if there's like a teacher that, you know, you feel comfortable talking to, that you've gotten to know over the years, you know, just because they're a teacher doesn't mean that they can't um, also serve as that mentor type person. Uh, It doesn't always, and 
And none of my mentors kind of know that they're my mentors, right? <laughs> That's one thing. They are just people that I have relationships with that I turn to for advice and to uh, discuss, you know, career or personal decisions. Um, and so you it doesn't have to be a formal mentor relationship, but it can be someone that you, you know, trust for advice. And that I think is the best way to go about it. Um, it's just to think through folks that you interact with or, with or have interacted with and see who you can start turning to to have a deeper conversations with. So I clear, I mean, it's, it's funny because I, I've been doing these, these interviews for the podcast and I never got the memo that um, you don't have to awkwardly ask somebody to be your mentor because I, I have had people who I absolutely considered mentors and thought that that needed to be a formal thing. And I'm, I'm hearing and learning so much more about what that, what that even looks like. Um, and, yeah. and it sounds like trust is a big part of that uh, as well as, um, as, as that vulnerability, but also there doesn't need to be this expectation of reciprocity. I mean, it, it depends. Um, there is, there can be that expectation. So, and I feel, and I think, you know, perhaps, particularly in those more formal relationships where you ask someone to be your mentor, um, you, you know, a lot of times are kind of like, what's in it for me? Like, why would I help you? Um, and so I think there are different type of mentor relationships. Uh, the ones that, that I've managed to formulate have just been more organic. Um, and, um, not necessarily, there is no kind of with them in there, what's in it for me, but, you know, I do also do my best to, to help folks out when I can. Um, and so, so yeah, I think there's a, a number of different ways that you can form, form the relationships. Um, it is always good to, to bring something to the table. Um, and, you know, it can be, you know, particularly as, you know, a high school student, you know, it can be as simple as your point of view or feedback from, you know, if, if depending on where they are and what they're doing, if they have a business that is looking, you know, that is marketing to folks your age, you can bring in the point of view uh, of your, you and your friends um, and your peers. And so um, I think that takes many different, um, many different forms. I would just say, you know, don't let the formality of it and making it, you know, don't, don't get stuck to one different form. Because that can really, you know, stop you from forming a relationship, um, you know, because you are trying to figure out, okay, what can I offer this person? There may be people that are already in your sphere that you already have relationships with that can also, uh, you know, serve as that mentorship role. I'm, I'm really looking forward to, this was one of uh, the things I was definitely looking forward to today. But another thing that we're doing today um, for Code to College is we have a series of Black History Month workshops, um, both on the professional development side and also on the STEM industry case competition side. And our first workshop of the, um, of the month is tonight, and that's with Vista Equity Partners. And oh, so, okay. yeah, it's, it's exciting because we are going to do a private equity case with a bunch of high school students, which blows my mind because I didn't find out about private equity really until right before we went to Wharton. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't right. tell you what private equity was. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah. And that's why exposure is so important, right? It, it truly, it truly is because 
had I had I known what private equity was, I, I guarantee you, I would have at least explored. A, I would have explored my career in finance a lot differently. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you the things that you're exposed to kind of lead you where you're going. Mm-hmm. Um, and the typical lawyer, doctor, uh, you know, investment banking uh, career paths that you see are, you know, there's so much more to that. There's so much more than that. Um, so, you know, that's why it's great. You know, you have the post college really, you know, the exposure, I think just that I think will, will open so many doors for people. And I can, I can tell you a story, a quick, quick, funny story about exposure. So I have also always been like fascinated with the weather and I was telling, I love the weather. Uh, I was telling my husband the other day that like, if when I was growing up, I had seen black weather women on the TV, I probably would have been a weather woman, but I did not know that that was, I just didn't, it didn't ever cross my mind that that was an option to me. Isn't that interesting? Yes, it is. (laughs) And I, Um, yeah. Yes. Representation absolutely matters. It matters. I was having um, on another interview. We were talking about. Uh, I was speaking to to two two other badass black women who both went to Princeton, and I said, whenever somebody referred to Princeton, I just thought of this one building, even though I'm sure Princeton has many buildings, like, mm-hmm. um, but one building covered in ivy, uh, no people, they're all inside, and I and I couldn't get in. That's that's. <laughs> And there was, they would say, well, you know, it's, it's a lot more accessible than you think. And people have this idea of, well, you have to be all, you know, 4.0s and valedictorians. And so when you get there, that is not, that is not the reality. And I mean, you went to Yale for undergrad and, and I can only Mm -hmm. imagine, you know, what you might have to say about that. But my, I, I brought up uh, Vista in, in our private equity uh, case competition tonight because there are going to be a bunch of black and brown students in that in that uh, workshop, which is yeah. personally exciting for me that all of these students are going to get to learn about what private equity is about and and hear that there is a black billionaire behind this global company acquiring and and purchasing stakes in in these tech companies that impact their daily lives and so. I'd love to hear from you what your experience has been navigating PE because you are not the uh, prototypical private equity professional, right? Yeah, happy to share um, and to just clarify, you know, just give you some more information about, you know, what what I do at Farragut Square Group, which is now part of McDermott, Will and Emery, uh, which is a large uh, law firm. So we're a healthcare advisory firm um, and we work with private equity investors to help them acquire healthcare companies. Our focus is really around um, policy, healthcare policy and reimbursement and legislation. So trying to figure out or help investors understand how what is happening in Washington is, is going to impact say um, the home health company they want to buy or the hospice company they're interested in purchasing um, or the hospital there or the dermatology office that they're interested in buying. Um, and so that is that is what I do. And in my role, 
I, um, I head business development. And so, you know, that entails trying to figure out how to grow the business and get clients to work with us. Um, and our clients are, are 90% uh, private equity firms. Um, and so, you know, the makeup of most private equity firms or private equity in general is no, is kind of known to be like a, um, you know, a boys club. <laughs> um, and it's mostly a white boys club. I am, you know, one of very few African-Americans and one of very few African-American women um, that operate within the healthcare private equity um, sphere. I can, I can also say that within kind of the healthcare services where I operate, I really haven't seen any other uh, African-American woman, but I know there has to be one out there. Uh, but this is, you know, thousands of people. And, you know, to, for me searching for one other, uh, it's complete um, under, you know, complete underrepresentation. Um, so how do I operate uh, in that field? You know, I will say um, overall, you know, being candid, my credentials help. <laughs> having, you know, having gone to Yale and, and Wharton, um, you're up, uh, you know, I see a lot of people that, are, you know, that we went to the same, we share the same alma mater. Um, that's one way I connect with it. But I would say, you know, the biggest, the biggest thing is, is to just not be, you know, to just be, your, be yourself, like not be intimidated by being the only person in the room. Um, I love Michelle Obama's comments that she made a couple years ago or last year with something along the line of, you know, I've been in the room with some of the top leaders in the world. And let me tell you something, they're not that smart. And she's, and I am paraphrasing, oh my God, so I don't know if that's exactly what she said, but that was kind of the sentiment of, of what she said. And it's not that they're not that smart. It's more so that, you know, the, it's attainable. Like it, it's more so that you are just as smart. <laughs> we all are just as smart. Everyone has something to offer. And I'm kind of going off, off base, but you know, I really just uh, try to approach it and, you know, forget about the differences and approach each person on a one-on-one -on -one level that I talk to. Um, you'll find that there are, you know, most people are very nice. There are a lot of common commonalities between folks that you can talk to. Um, you know, even though a lot of times I'm the only African-American or only woman, um, everybody, you know, people are, are people. Some folks are awkward. Some people are chatty. Some people are quiet, you know? And so, um, I have really tried not to focus on my differences and kind of just focus on whatever similarities we have, um, and kind of the, my, my greater purpose for being there. Yeah. I think you prefaced all of that about finding similarities that it does not hurt to be in the same network, <laughs> yeah, the Yale network or the Warden network to yeah. make some of those connections. When you think about um, someone in particular, let's say another black woman who is interested in private equity, maybe she's listening to, to you speak, um, but she doesn't have that same access and maybe she doesn't have the same credentials what is the path to private equity? Because, I mean, again, when I think of some of the guys we went to school with, and I say guys intentionally because they were all guys, um, they had already been in private equity um, or they knew the right people and it was pretty insular. So what do you say to that that woman who's listening, who she's got the desire, she's got the drive, and and she heard what you just said, which is 
it's attainable. How does she get into private equity? So that's a great question. I would, I would, you know, first thing I would say is to make sure that all your bases are covered in terms of your technical skills and your background. So, you know, right now, private equity firms hire mostly from investment banks and you, and so you want to try to get a job if to get into private equity is your goal. You want to try to get a job at um, doing investment banking at one of the large investment banks or, you know, a smaller one, but larger one would be great because those names speak, um, speak volumes on your resume. Um, and so I would say that is kind of your first goal because that will really give you, um, and, and mostly private equity firms don't hire for the most part right out of college. Um, they want people with experience and that's the experience that they're looking for. You do have some private equity firms that look for uh, consulting experience. I think um, those are few and far between, but you do have some that will hire um, you know, former consultants, but the majority of folks have investment banking. And so I would set that as your shorter term goal. Um, coming from high school, I, <laughs> there are programs like that that can help help you get those positions because they are difficult positions to get. I would say the first, you know, the first, you know, block roadblock is really knowing about these programs or knowing about these positions um, and knowing that that's what you want to do. I would say when I was, you know, in high school, even though I was in inroads and, uh, you know, interning at, at JP Morgan in finance, there's still so many different things you can do at a bank. Um, so really educating yourself about, you know, finance and, and really understanding it. Um, I would never, you know, I would say, you know, being in high school is a perfect time to do that um, because a lot of other folks who, you know, have parents who grew up and, and a lot of people grew up around finance and, and going to work with their parents where they, you know, they see them doing deals in private equity or in investment banking. And so any way that you can educate yourself, I would, you know, read the newspaper um, or, you know, read online since no one actually reads a newspaper anymore, but, you know, keep up with the times, you know, keep up with the Wall Street Journal um, and what's happening in finance um, so that you can really, you know, you're really familiar and you really understand what you're getting into and it'll help you understand if that's something that you're in fact interested in. Um, but overall, I think, you know, banking background is necessary and that'll at least you'll have like the groundwork to get there. Um, after that, uh, it's a lot of networking, <laughs> getting to know people. I mean, throughout your career, you should never underestimate the impact of just networking and introducing yourself to people and staying in contact with folks not everyone has to be, you know, most people won't be a mentor, but it, you know, you can just stay in contact with people periodically also. Did you, did you always want to pursue finance? So ever since I went to the, to lead that program, I wanted to be in business. Yeah. I wasn't exactly sure like what I wanted to do. I, oh, I knew weirdly, I always knew I wanted to go to, to, to business school, um, I did have a stint right after undergrad where I thought I wanted to go to law school. Um, I um, dismissed that by working at a law firm as a paralegal. Um, and I, it was, it, you know, just did not interest me. The hours were, were ridiculous. And, you know, working long hours is not horrible if you're doing something that you love. Um, but I was not interested. You know, I found out quickly 
you know, I wasn't interested in this, you know, and the, you know, the turning point story was, you know, we would work long hours into the night. And one night it was, I think maybe like two 30 or three o'clock. I had just AM and I had just finished, you know, what I was working on. And I called the attorney I was working with to tell them that I was heading home. And he says to me, <laughs> he's like, are you sure? He's like, you have to be back here at at 6 a.m. or 6.30, are you sure you can go home and go to sleep and then wake up and be back here in time? And I was like, yeah, of course. He's like, why don't you just stay here? There are some, you know, some couches. You can find a couch on one of the floors and sleep in. And I, I could not believe it, one, but I said, okay, fine. And so I walked around this building looking for a couch. I couldn't find one that I felt comfortable sleeping in because it was an open, you know, building. Um, and so I ended up sleeping in my office underneath my desk because, <laughs> you know, that was my, in my desk. And I, um, at 7am or so my phone rang and it was the attorney like, wake up, good morning, let's get going. Um, and that was, that was a turning point for me where I said, you know, this is not a career that I love this much. You know, I don't like what they're doing this much. Um, and so I did kind of waver a bit and try to go into law. I'm glad I did not. So that, uh, that sounds mighty familiar. I was also considering a career in law and, uh, I didn't have a late night under a desk. I just read a book about, uh, what law school was like. And I said, no, I'm good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, And listen, one thing I would say, I would, you know, advise people, you know, before you take you know, get as much exposure to what you're, what you think you're interested in doing long ter- long term as possible. Um, you know, I know a lot of lawyers who went to law school right after undergrad, um, and I think it's fifty fifty as to if they're happy they did it or not. I am very happy that I decided to to test out the waters a bit before I committed to doing that. Um, not everyone has that option. Not everyone wants to do that. But you know, read up, talk to people in these professions if you can. LinkedIn is, you know, a great, you know, a great way to professionally, you know, network and find people that are doing jobs that you may not be interested in. So kind of find out as much as do as much research as you can on whatever you think you may be interested in. And so speaking of research, I mean, this is some nice primary research. What does it mean for for you and your role at Farragut to be head of business development? Because that's got to be super exciting and, and you've got to be <laughs> guiding I mean when you're laughing but you've got <laughs> I mean you've got to be guiding or informing some some major operations for for the firm right yes so head of business development I really focus on um, growing the business <laughs> uh, to keep it succinct um, so that involves, um, identifying new clients that we can work with, uh, keeping up relationships with, you know, older, you know, clients that we've worked with over, um, a period of time. Also looking for new partnerships, like who are the, you know, who are the investment banks that we can partner with? Um, who are the accounting firms that we can partner with? We are part of a large law firm now, so we don't do that anymore. Um, I also work on our marketing materials. I figure out kind of what are our clients interested in um, and how do we get that information to them? How do we stay ahead of the curve in terms of trends that are coming through in healthcare? um, And how do we stay of interest to our clients? 
Um, and so, you know, prior to coronavirus, um, prior to this pandemic, I did a ton of traveling. So I was always, you know, in New York or, well, I'm from New York, but I was always in Chicago or DC or Boston um, or Nashville, uh, Dallas or LA. These are folks where there are, these are places where there are a lot of private equity firms. Um, just, and, and I would go there and I would meet with clients. Uh, pretty consistently, um, just to understand kind of, hey, what are you guys looking at in healthcare? Um, what are your concerns? What are you thinking? How can we help you guys out? And so my overall top line goal is to grow the business. Um, and so that comes in in many ways. Uh, managing and um, dealing with clients is kind of my top priority. One interesting thing that I'll also share. Um, so prior to this, I worked at Bank of America where I did internal strategy um, and that just, and that was trying to figure out ways to grow their uh, wealth management business. So like, how do we offer them more products? Bank of uh, Merrill Lynch and Bank of America had just merged. And so they were trying to figure out how do we offer the Bank of America product suite to Merrill Lynch clients? So I did there a lot of um, consulting around how do we grow that business, this portion of the business in, in terms of smaller projects. When I started at Farragut, um, it was a time, it, it was, Farragut's was started in 2011. And so part of the reason I went there was because I was interested in um, no longer working for a large company and going to a small company where I could basically help launch it. And so I came in to help launch the private equity side of the business. Um, and so, you know, I've seen it uh, start from basically zero when I started in 2014 to being like a multi-million dollar, you know, area of, of Farragut. Uh, now in 2021. And so that, and, and so my role has landed in kind of the head of business development and, and the private equity products. Um, but I worked very closely with the founder, um, who I also considered one of my mentors. <laughs> um, I worked very closely with her um, and her partner, um, you know, for the first three or four years to get the business off the ground and get it started. That is fantastic. I mean, you you are effectively the tip of the spear, you know that that type of interaction with clients. And I mean, would you say that that's your your most exciting part of the job that you do, or or what what excites you the most? Being a um, black woman, and uh, it was very interesting coming in to start this business and try to penetrate it, the private equity market. Uh, because there was no one that looked like me. And, you know, unlike a lot of people that start there, I knew no one, you know? And so when I first started, I, you know, I remember my boss sent me to a conference to go like meet people and get clients. And I was literally interrupting circles of men speaking saying, Oh, excuse me. You know, hi, I'm Lisa. Hi. I, it, you know, that's just what I did. I literally just had to go up to people um, and just say, hello. <laughs> and start the conversation as awkward as it is. Um, and it, and it always, you know, looking back, it does amaze me that, uh, my boss picked me for that role <laughs> instead of a, you know, a white male who could probably seamlessly go in there and not stand out at all and like go play golf with everyone and, and do that. But, um, you know, overall people are, are human and they'd like to talk to smart people, nice people, um, you know, folks who are relatable, even if they're not the exact same as you. I, I wonder to what extent your your success is attributable to your mindset. You know, your mindset is a lot, um, particularly in in my role. Um, 
and it's something that you know I I you know sometimes struggle with I always have to give myself a pep talk um I will say you know your thoughts will kind of control your actions so you have to be very aware of what you're telling yourself before a conversation you need to to pump yourself up um but I will say like in my current role um I was initially and I still feel you know sometimes like a little challenged going into rooms where it's just all older white men (laughs) and me and I need to go in there and like you know meet everyone and try to you know get people to be familiar with our firm um I have you know one example I was at a dinner my boss sent me to a dinner in Nashville with one of my with the other co-founder um and it was dinner of healthcare CEOs and CFOs um, and it was in uh, 2016, right after Trump was elected president. Um, and I was the only black person in the room. It was about 35 people, the only black person in the room, and maybe one of like four women. And my colleague was giving a speech on the the election impacts on healthcare. And it was an interesting environment because I kept thinking how different the conversation would have been if I was not in the room. And the conversations that wouldn't would have been had around Trump and like who really supported him and things like that. And so it's a weird kind of tense environment. But the 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 thing that you know I've taught myself not to do is to not mentally psych myself out. Like, you know, all these people, you know, they all like, you know, are politically leaning this way. I approach each person individually because I have to and I get to know them. Um, you know, and, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm, I'm usually pleasantly surprised by people's receptiveness, people's, you know, political views, and just the conversations and relationships that I'm able to strike up with, with folks. Um, and so, you know, I would say you have to be aware of your mindset and not, not closing yourself off you know, unintentionally closing yourself off by assuming how other people are perceiving you or what their beliefs are or whether or not they want to speak to you. Um, And just, you know, I always say you have to embrace the awkward. (laughs) You know, don't just, you know, go and just say hello to someone that you don't know. Um, and, And just, you know, and strike up a conversation. And the more you do things like that, the more it becomes less awkward. And you get used to uh, really networking um, and being in, you know, being in air in um, in rooms where you may there may not be anyone that you can you, that that looks like you. I love that, and I've I have personally always felt that you've had this overwhelmingly positive outlook. And every question I've had about, well, how have you dealt with this? I feel like it does come back to you know. <laughs> we all have we all have commonalities and you got to find those commonalities and 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 keep it moving um which i know that it's not as simple as that but i do i do think that a great part of success in general and and i would i would think your success is is that outlook as well you know it, it you your focus and your perspective uh paired with your drive have have served you really well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I am on the front line with all of our clients. And so I will say it's, you know, I don't take things personally. I mean, sometimes I do. That's when someone's really got to me, but for like, like most of the time, like 
I don't take things personally. Uh, and I have, and I generally have like a pretty, just, a, I'm just very generally pretty, pretty pleasant. Um, and it takes a lot to kind of rile me up <laughs> and get me upset. Um, and so I do think that has been helpful. You know, like I, you know, if, so, if I feel like I'm being excluded from something at like a client event, I don't, you know, I don't immediately react. Um, and not saying, and I'm not saying that that's the right thing, but that's how I am. Like, I'm not, I don't, I don't react immediately. I kind of think through like, okay, is this kind of work worth bringing up? How should I approach this? Um, but I don't, I try not to let things really get to me. And I just, you know, I try to, I try to, um, stay positive. And when I do encounter, you know, um, when I do encounter assholes, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but, um, I don't, I don't, I, I chalk it up to them not me. Like, I don't, I don't say that you, you, because most people don't know me. So you're, whatever you're doing, that is whatever asshole ways or whatever. If I, if I, if I feel like you're being like racist or sexist or whatever, uh, that's your problem, (laughs) not mine, Uh, unless it directly, it starts to really directly impact me. But if it's, if it's in a, um, you know, a conversation or an encounter, I do my best to, um, you know, to, to realize that some people are just assholes. Like that is like the biggest thing. And I always tell my mom that because she's very reactionary and I'm like opposite from her. I like don't react at all. I'm like, ma, it's not always like about you. Some people are just, they're, they're just, they're just assholes. They're just not nice people. They're, they're negative. And if you let their negativity always get to you, then, then that's who you'll become. Uh, and so that's kind of, that's kind of the approach I take. Uh, which works a lot of the time, but I, I am generally like pretty positive. That's why I'm client facing. That has to be a huge asset when you're client facing to to have that thick yeah. skin. And if I could, if I could change topics for a moment, tell me about your son, Liam. So Liam is six. He's going to be 16 months old tomorrow. And he is a busy, busy, busy man. He's been extremely lucky because he has had his mother home with him ever since he was born. The day I was supposed to go back from maternity leave was the day this, the stay-at-home order was um, was enacted in the New York area. Um, and so he does not know life without mommy. He does not know daycare yet. He does have, um, he, we do have a nanny that spends the day with him so that me and my husband can work because we're both working from home. Uh, but he's great. I mean, he's starting to talk and um just busy like i can't wait i told you we're in the process of shopping for a house um which you know you bought a house is a whole thing um i feel like no one prepared you for adulthood (laughs) because you just you just have to do everything it's just a lot everything is a lot (laughs) but he's you know he's doing good we're 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 moving and i once we move we're putting him in daycare. Um, and so that's exciting because he needs to be around other kids, but it's great. He's great. <laughs> that is wonderful. How, and how has it, how's it been to be a mom during this whole thing? I mean, you've got a nanny, but he's also home. Yeah. So it is, um, it is, it's, it's tough, you know, it's tough. Um, it's tough. It's just tough because you don't have, you know, you can't see your family, your friends, your support system. You just don't see them. 
you know, you're wearing a mask every time you go out. There's really no place to 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 take him. Or, or we we've been very conservative on our quarantining, so we stay home. Like we're not going out to, and we don't go anywhere. We see like my husband's parents and and maybe my parents maybe once a month. Um, because we just don't think the risk is worth it. <laughs> um, and so it's been very, it's been very tough, um, because, you know, a 16 month old, like he doesn't know what's going on and he still, you know, he still has a ton of needs and I still have a full-time job and I still have a husband. And like I said, we're shopping for a house. And, um, I think it's really the lack of, um, you know, just being able to get out and go somewhere or like do a play date with someone else. But really he relies on me, you know, for everything, which is me and my husband, which is, you know, normal, but we don't have those outlets of, you know, going to the museum or dropping him off at his, you know, in-laws or playing with his cousins even. And so, you know, that makes it tough. Then I also feel bad, like he's missing out on stuff. So it's, it's been really, it's been really tough. Uh, me and my good friend from undergrad who has two kids and she's a lawyer in, um, in Florida, we, we kind of talk about, you know, how tough it is, you know, all the time. But, but then we also remind ourselves that in the mother sphere, we probably have the best case scenario. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of we both we still have jobs you know we have caretakers helping us um and so it's you know you it's hard you know let's me trying to be positive um it is tough uh, many 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 people have it way tougher <laughs> right I do consider myself kind of in the best case scenario so I'm not going to go down like it's so hard path but you know th these are challenges and I think being a working mom these days has really exasperated the role you know that women the, the number of roles that women play um a lot of folks are a lot of women are struggling with their careers because they now have kids that are home that need to you know you have to watch them all day my you know i tried to do my best to stay <laughs> to, you know to stay focused at work but it definitely has taken a hit you know in terms of uh, you know versus being in the office and like having complete focus you know yesterday the last two days, um, we had a snowstorm, so we didn't have any childcare. And so I was trying to work and deal with my son all day. And I just, I, I just had to take off yesterday because this, you know, it doesn't work. Um, uh, so it's really, it is, it presents a whole new set of challenges. I was thinking the other day, I was like, wow, college really was the sweet spot. Yeah. It's like the sweet spot. It's like the best time you, you don't have any real responsibilities except to go to class and study and get good grades. Um, and, and, but you're on your own and you're like, you're living life and you, you don't, you know, it's, it's, it's like, just, it really is the sweet spot. Um, because after that, yeah, things after just kind of, Oh yeah. So, well, but it's, it's all good. Going to, we going to college in New Haven. Yeah. That must've been, come on. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> we, um, so I don't know. So just for the dynamics, New Haven is, um, Yale is in the middle of New Haven, which is a pri pri uh, predominantly black neighborhood. 
um, working class is how I would describe it. Uh, and the interesting dynamic is like most of new, most of Yale's like workers, like the cafeteria workers um, and the custodians, they all are African-American in, from the community. Um, and so, you know, my friends and I, we, um, you know, we were friends with all the workers because, <laughs> because that's how we do. So we, we, um, it, it was, you know, we enjoyed it. Like we got to know everyone. We had, we knew people throughout the community. I ran a, the Yale's branch of a, a national mentoring program. You know, one thing I'll say is that, um, as soon as you're able, um, to the audience, you should, you should start mentoring and you, you know, really start, start giving back. You have, you have more to give than you probably think. Um, but I started as soon as I entered college, um, you know, and so uh, it was great. I enjoyed being in, you know, in New Haven because I liked to be around black people. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we always felt a good dynamic with the folks. I mean, there's always, you know, some, um, there, there was, I would say a little bit of tension between like the community, you know, Yale being such a rich institution surrounded by, you know, an area and, uh, you know, with all working class and kind of what investment are they doing in their local community? There was, there were always those issues within Yale. There were also issues around um, the colleges, the dorm systems, which are called colleges. I think um, more recently they renamed one, which I don't remember what the new name is, uh, because it was named after like a, after a slave owner or something. And so, you know, there are those, those historical ties because it was founded in the 1700s um, that you have, um, you know, within the institution itself. Um, but I, you know, I had a great time at Yale and, and, and my friends and I, we really uh, got to know the local community. That's fantastic. Before we end, I'd like to close with, what is one thing that you would like to leave for that young black girl who's listening right now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, one thing I would say would be to really um, think about what, what you're interested in and what excites you and follow that <laughs> and try to build a career around that. I think you can really do, I know they say this, anything that you want to do. Uh, and your thoughts are probably the, the, the uh, largest roadblocks to doing that. <laughs> so watch your thoughts, but really think about what it is that you love. What do you enjoy doing that doesn't seem you know, like work, you love learning more about, you love the challenges of it and try to think through how can I make this my next step, my job, my career and write it down so that you don't forget. <laughs> That's what I would say. I love that. Super intentional. Yeah. And, um, and thank you so much, Lisa. Thanks for having me. You've inspired more than you'll you'll even know so so thank you for making the time listeners uh come on back for another episode of technically 200 next week thanks for listening to today's episode of technically 200 don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com until next time <laughs>